Welcome to Humanities Now, the official podcast of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. We're glad to have you back with us for the start of a new season. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Borshuk, Associate Professor in the Department of English and Director of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. Humanities Now features regular conversations with members of the humanities community here at TTU. With every episode, these varied voices help us realize the Center's mission, asking out loud, what does it mean to be human, and demonstrating how we can answer that question from so many different perspectives. On Friday, September 15th, after six months of volatile debate and much public protest from students and faculty alike, West Virginia University's Board of Governors voted to slash academic programs and cut faculty positions. The goal was to match WVU's institutional expenditures to shrinking enrollments. The university's president, E. Gordon Gee, had forecast these reductions back in the spring, first in his State of the University address and then in other public statements. As Gee articulated in an email to Inside Higher Ed, Moving forward, we are evaluating everything, from our operations to our academic programs to our services. We are repositioning ourselves today so that we can be a responsive, relevant university system of the future. West Virginia's administration sought assistance in this strategic repositioning toward relevance from a paid consulting firm, the RPK Group. The particular aptitude that RPK brought to this process was, and here I cite the language they use themselves on their website, a distinctive emphasis on maximizing mission, market, and margin, registered trademark. Two days before the crucial vote by West Virginia's Board of Governors, Lisa M. Corrigan took to social media to decry the discursive influence RPK had exerted over the university's impending reductions. Corrigan was particularly critical of what she called consultant doublespeak at the center of the discussion. One of her targets was the term right-sizing, which had appeared in op-eds and public discussion to describe the presumably necessary cutbacks intended to align operating costs with enrollment revenues. As Corrigan argued, though, right-sizing is the opposition of wrong-sizing, which is implied— and the term produces the veneer of legitimacy for administrators that the slash and burn they have chosen without faculty input and driven by consultants is correct on its face. In zeroing in on the euphemistic rhetoric used to justify eliminating programs and reducing instructional workforce, Corrigan recalled comments by Wharton professor Peter Capelli in a recent piece for the Atlantic Daily by journalist Laura Kelly. In Kelly's article, How Corporate Jargon Can Obscure Reality, Capelli remembers how, in the early 1980s, when white-collar corporate America saw its first mass layoffs, executives started using phrases such as re-engineering. Referring to terms like these as euphemistic bubble wrap, Kelly summarizes that, at its worst, corporate jargon dehumanizes a typically devastating process. It makes real pain abstract. And the end result of the West Virginia cutbacks was pain. Faculty and staff lost jobs. Programs were eliminated. Students were denied educational pathways they thought would be available when they enrolled. And amid this process, which West Virginia administrators called an academic transformation, the humanities were hit particularly hard. The university is eliminating all its foreign language degrees, including undergraduate programs in French, 
Spanish, Chinese studies, German studies, and Russian studies, along with master's degrees in linguistics and teaching English to speakers of other languages. But this isn't just happening in West Virginia. At Miami University of Ohio, administrators are also looking to trim programs they see as under-enrolled and thus insolvent. Those majors in danger of disappearing? Also disproportionately from the humanities. Latin American studies, American studies, art history, critical race and ethnic studies, classical studies, French, French education, German, German education, health communication, health information technology, Italian studies, Latin education, religion, Russian, East European and Eurasian studies, Spanish education, and social justice. In August, Brandeis University announced they would stop admitting doctoral students in musicology and music composition as they look ahead to eliminating those programs. In North Dakota, Dickinson State University also plans to cut programs, communication, political science, theater, and music. Just last week, Gettysburg College made the surprising announcement that they would be cutting their award-winning literary magazine, the Gettysburg Review, citing budgetary responsibility in the face of financial crisis. Over and over again, university cuts in this nationwide scourge turn on a discourse of fiscal necessity. Students and faculty have been asked repeatedly to accept the self-affirming logic of cutting programs to address budgetary shortfalls. For Lisa M. Corrigan, the insistent turn to this fiscal logic hides insidious intentions. As she wrote in The Nation back in August, policies that funnel public funds to private entities as with West Virginia's hiring of our PK group, are intentionally designed to produce two tiers of education, one for the elite at small, private, endowed universities, and one for state students who are poor, first-generation, disabled, or are interested in the liberal arts, fine arts, or programs that question the current political arrangement. I begin with all of this because, like most humanities scholars, especially those at public universities, I'm chilled by the trends I've just described. I fear a day when the literature classes I teach might be seen as not drawing in enough student tuition dollars to justify their continued existence. On that potentially dark day, I worry that the usefulness of teaching Gertrude Stein or Langston Hughes or Toni Morrison is no longer taken for granted. But I also summarize these stories about universities and cutbacks because here at the Humanities Center, we've got value and values on our minds. That is, our theme this year is value slash values, and we'll be thinking about both in our programming between now and next spring. We want to ask, what is the difference between value and values? Why does the plural form of the word connote morality? Well, the singular suggests exchange. And what inheres in the word's basic meaning that unites these two seemingly disparate realms? We'll pursue these basic questions through our year-long speaker series and a series of films that we'll show at Alamo Drafthouse here in Lubbock. We'll be hosting an art exhibition in February and joining our efforts with the Vernacular Music Center and the Teaching, Learning, and Professional Development Center on campus to host workshops on how we might value different modes of learning or bodies of knowledge and evaluate our students in less traditional ways. Throughout the year, we will explore the friction between values and value, 
between pluralistic and normative conceptions of value. What are we doing exactly when we evaluate something? And what does that mean about the assumptions we bring to our habit of assessment, moral and otherwise? We'll talk a little bit more about value after a short break. Did you know that you can donate directly to the Humanities Center at Texas Tech? Gifts to our Excellence Fund supplement the generous funding we receive from the President's Office, the Provost's Office, and the Office of the Vice President for Research and Innovation. Your gift supports the free programming we offer, including online seminars, local film showings, art exhibitions, and a wide array of visiting speakers. Donations also help promote faculty research like that featured on today's show or allow us to support graduate students in the humanities by funding participation in national conferences and seminars. And it helps pay for this show. If you're interested in donating to the Humanities Center at Texas Tech, please visit our website, humanitycenter.ttu.edu, and click on the big red Donate button on the front page. Thank you. Up next is my colleague Paul Reinch, Associate Professor of Practice in Screen and Stage Studies in the School of Theatre and Dance here at TTU. Paul returns this year as curator for the film series at Alamo Drafthouse we'll be hosting as part of this year's programming theme. Here's Paul with an overview. I'm Paul Reinch, Associate Professor of Practice in Stage Screen Studies, and I teach in the School of Theatre and Dance. This summer, you probably heard about Barbenheimer. Barbenheimer is a portmanteau combining the names of two popular films, Barbie and Oppenheimer, but the word was created before either film could actually be considered popular. Unlike other recent conflations of popular names, which signal a romantic relationship, this one signals a different sort of union. Here, audiences join the name of a Warner Brothers film with the name of a Universal film, films scheduled to open on the same date and compete for ticket sales. Industry-planned counter-programming was repurposed to be something like a double feature. These days, outside of drive-ins, actual double features are really hard to come by. So, having said that, please support your local drive-in movie theater. Now, you also likely noticed this summer that social media platforms allowed folks to display their Barbenheimer plans, and in some cases, their Barbenheimer outfits. And social media platforms allowed folks to tell the rest of us that they had seen both films on the same day. Social media always allows users to signal their values, to signal their virtues, to signal their purchases, to signal values through purchases. But what else might Barbenheimer mean? Well, Barbenheimer may suggest that we value movie theaters, that we value large screens, that we value sitting in the dark with strangers, that we long for and value a sense of community even a community that only actually lasts for a few hours. Some folks hope that Barbenheimer means the end of superhero movies, that perhaps we want to move away from very long and very expensive films that repeatedly tell us that the best way to solve problems is by punching someone in the face. Suggesting that films reflect, or even shape, culture is not actually a new idea. On the other hand, it hasn't always been a given. German film scholar Siegfried Krakauer 
did as much as anyone to create what we now call film scholarship. Born to a Jewish family, he escaped to France in the early 1930s, and by the 40s made his way to New York City. There he wrote the pioneering book, From Caligari to Hitler, A Psychological History of the German Film. There, and throughout his career, Krakauer argues for the importance of studying mass art and studying popular art. To offer a psychological history of a national cinema is to explore connections between film and a culture's beliefs, hopes, fears, and goals. To put it another way, films, following Krakauer, provide opportunities to talk about what we value. Films present, encourage, discourage particular values. Due to its function as mass art, film has often been subject to intense scrutiny and censorship. One way to consider films in light of this year's Humanity Center theme is to think about films which face intense scrutiny and even rejection. What do we do with films that present ideas we would rather not consider? How do we respond to films which confront us with images and sounds that are purposefully abhorrent? Or more broadly, if a film does not present my values, should I control access to that film? Should I control access for all others? And for how long? Some films, on the other hand, seem impossible to silence. There is a rich history of nonfiction films in particular whose impact explodes outside movie theaters to correct injustices and to force change in policy or even a change in regime. In other words, a change in values. Films can and do also reject traditions of silence. Experiences historically condemned to be off-screen or in the background or out of focus can instead occupy the center of the screen, can dominate the soundtrack, can become the narrative focus. Some films defiantly assert that values all too often thought to be normal and please hear the scare quotes in my voice when I say normal, that those values are simply values that plod forward in time because they are unquestioned. And some films threaten our sense of aesthetic value. Now, one response is to performatively ridicule a film that we dislike, that doesn't meet our standards. Yet sometimes when we are shouting that a work does not speak to us or for us, we might instead humbly ask, well, who is this for? As we loudly proclaim that something does not fit our values, we might instead ask, whose values does it represent? And does my shouting drown out voices that are already struggling to be heard? Films in the Humanities Center series are admittedly subject to change, but we plan to screen films at the Alamo Drafthouse on four different Wednesday evenings with the generous help of the film club. Confirmed for October 25 is Pier Paolo Pasolini's devastating final work, Salo, from 1975. Planned for November is Earl Morris's 1988 essential documentary, The Thin Blue Line. While the fall films are unapologetically serious, films planned for the spring are chosen to reflect a promise of change. As in the fall, the intention for the spring is to show both an, a fiction and a nonfiction film. First will be the remarkable documentary from 1990, Paris is Burning, and following a few weeks later will be the sometimes loved and often hated roller skating musical Xanadu from 1980. Note that we also intend to screen a film on campus 
with the help of the wonderful folks at Women Make Movies. We truly hope you will join us to talk about the films, about the values they suggest, about our shared values, and about places where our values may not exactly align. Please keep your eyes and ears open for confirmation about films and dates. We hope that you will attend one, or maybe even all five, of the screenings. You do not need to come in costume, as many did for Barbenheimer, but you might think about it. Paul. Finally, to wrap up this episode, I want to introduce you to Dr. Kevin Q. Malone. Kevin joins the Humanities Center this year as our 2023-2024 postdoctoral fellow in the humanities. Here's Kevin to tell you about the work he'll be doing this year at Texas Tech. Hi, everyone. I'm Kevin Malone. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Humanities Center. I hold an MA in American Studies from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and I recently completed my PhD in History at the University of California, San Diego. So my book project is tentatively titled Borderline Unsustainable, San Diego, Tijuana, and the Politics of Urban Planning at the U.S.-Mexico Boundary. So this is an urban and environmental history of the U.S.-Mexico border during the 20th century with a focus on San Diego and Tijuana and the binational urban area of these cities. I look at cross-border relations between these two cities as it relates to urban planning and the development of infrastructure. So I'm looking at infrastructure mainly for uh, water, wastewater management and flood control, but also the road network that connects at the border and the port of entry itself. And so I focus on the period from the 1920s to the 1990s. And so this means from Tijuana's first urban boom during the era of U.S. prohibition to the period of large-scale militarization and fortification of the international border under the presidency of Bill Clinton in the 90s. I look at the ways the two cities grew in tandem and became increasingly interconnected through shared infrastructure during periods in which the United States was erecting barriers on the international boundary in between them. Uh, and so the whole story of urban planning that I'm telling is set against the backdrop of the hardening border over the course of the 20th century. Okay, so what are my contributions? I think I am at this point making two major contributions, as far as I can see, uh, to the historical literature. First, my project shows that not all of what we call uh, quote-unquote U.S.-Mexico relations consists of interactions between federally appointed ambassadors, envoys, or other diplomats, or I might just say between the Department of State, U.S. Department of State, and Mexico's Ministry of Foreign Relations. Uh, much of what we can properly call U.S.-Mexico relations includes includes local actors uh, in neighboring border cities like San Diego and Tijuana. So elected and appointed officials at the local level, but also non-state actors, including grassroots environmentalists who do make uh, a really important appearance in the story I'm telling in the later chapters of my book project. 
Second, my, my second major contribution, as far as I can see, is that my project merges the traditionally unrelated fields of urban history and the history of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. So traditionally, these are fields that do not overlap very much. The field of urban history in the United States has been dominated, uh, as far as I can see, by a focus on very large cities, planned cities, planned American cities, particularly New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Meanwhile, uh, historians of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands have tended to overlook the cities, overlook the importance of the cities. They've tended to look at the border cities simply as, simply as the places within which history unfolded, within which history simply took place, while failing to account for the importance of the built environment as an agent of historical change or as a subject worthy of historical inquiry. So, okay, so what am I planning for this year while I'm a fellow at the Humanities Center? Uh, so while I'm here, I'll be doing research at, uh, in the Southwest Collection here at the Texas Tech Library, but I'll also be traveling around this very large state of Texas, and I'll be going to uh, examine records in the National Archives in Fort Worth. Particularly, they are the, the records of the International Boundary and Water Commission. I've already been there once during my time uh, at the Humanities Center here, and I'll be returning there again. I'll also be visiting the Special Collections Library at UT Austin. And while at Austin, I will be probably looking at records in the Presidential Library of President Lyndon B. Johnson. And I'll also be traveling the other way in Texas. I'll also be going to uh, UTEP, uh, to the Special Collections at UT El Paso. Although I will not be teaching during my time at the Humanities Center, I do look forward to returning to the classroom ultimately with the research I've done this year. I really do enjoy teaching about the history of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands and particularly to students whose lives are very connected uh, to the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, either through migration or in some other way. Uh, I'm very excited to be here at the Humanities Center this year. I've already met several faculty members on campus, and I look forward to interacting with the campus community uh, again and again moving forward. So thank you for having me. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Humanities Now. In the show notes, you'll find links to some of the articles I referenced in the first part of today's show. My thanks to the Humanities Center staff, our sound editor, Aubrey Harris, our media intern, Denise Marquez, and to the Center's new executive administrative assistant, Jacob Hall. A special note of thanks and good luck to Jacob's predecessor, Madison Wheeler, who left us this August. And thanks, as always, to Tyler Simpson for our original theme music. We'll be back soon with more conversations about what it means to be human. Be safe and be well.